Thank you. Good morning again. Uh, I'm Tony Elzuk, one of the pastors here. We're going to be continuing in our series in Mark. We're in chapter 6 today. So we're going to read a section uh, from that, from 1, verse 1 to 16. He went away from there and came to his hometown, he being Jesus, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mightier works there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. This is God's word. Please say this with, with us. Uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So when I uh, was growing up, I grew up in church I, my whole life, and uh, by the time I was in high school, I was what I like to call church cool. Now, I know some of you think there's no such thing as church cool, but you're wrong, because I was that. So I, I knew all the best Christian bands, uh, you know, I, I went to, to Night of Joy and, and all those things every year. I mean, I was... I even led, I led our church's drama team, we had a little improv comedy group, which is pretty good. Uh, I mean, you have to take my word for it, because none of you were there to see it, but it was pretty good. We were at mega church, it was a pretty big deal. So one day, my senior year, towards, uh, towards the, the end of my senior year, actually, uh, this, this young lady started coming to, to church, and well, I fancied her a little bit, and so uh, I let her join my premier uh, drama team, and we started hanging out a little bit, and I decided that I was going to ask her out on a date. It was the first time I'd ever asked anybody out, because remember, I was just church cool. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so I go up to her after, after our drama practice, but before, uh, before the, uh, the, the youth group, and I, I say, hey... On Friday, do you want to uh, you know, go see a movie and, and maybe get some dinner? And you know what she said? She said, yes. 
Some of you thought no. Some of you thought no. No, no, she said yes. So I was pretty excited about that. You know, so I go through youth group. I go back to my friends. We're high-fiving, you know, this is great. Like, finally success. And then, then after youth group, uh, she comes up to me and she says, hey, um, when, you, when you talked about dinner and a movie on Friday, you meant as a group, right? Because if that's what you meant, then yes. But if it was just like me and you, then no. No, 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 no. She only said no once, but that's what it felt like, you know, like that no that just reverberates, no. She was like, John Kerry, she voted for going out with me before she voted against it. And now I had to go back to all my friends. We were just high-fiving, and you got to take it back. It turned out she was really into my brother, who was both church cool and cool cool. So that's the way it goes sometimes. We go through life and we face rejection. And sometimes we, we heal from it. Sometimes we turn it to humor and pain. I'm, I'm over it now. But some of us have, have much deeper rejections than that. And oftentimes we get rejected for our faith. We live as Christians and people reject us, they, they don't like us, they make fun of us, maybe they call you Flanders or God boy in high school, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here, not talking from, you know, personal experience or anything, but they reject us, and it's become actually commonplace now that uh, in our culture that if you, if you don't fully accept somebody's lifestyle, if you're, if you're not all in with what they're doing, then the encouragement is for those people to reject the people who, who don't support them. Right, whether it's their parents, their grandparents, siblings, friends, only be with the people who support everything that you support, who are with you. And so as Christians, we can face a lot of deep rejection. It's a time of that season of that right now. There's probably some people here who have been cut off from family and friends and are facing some, some deep struggles over how to handle these types of things. And this rejection was common in Mark's day as well in the early church. And so Mark was writing his gospel as a letter to, uh, to Christians who were living in probably Rome. They were uh, Greek Roman Christians, and they were facing persecutions. The thought is that they were under Nero at the time, and Nero was a very bad man. He was brutal. He was brutal to a lot of people, but he was particularly brutal to Christians. And so there was a the famous story where there was a fire in Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians, and so he, he started persecuting them. And one of the famous things that he used to do was to take them and, and light them on fire to light his gardens. And he would take them and put them in the Colosseum and feed them to beasts. And so, so some of these stories of the rejection really hit home to the people in Mark's day who were reading this. Because this was the same things that they were facing. But the story of John the Baptist getting his head cut off is something that, that feels far away to us. right? That happens. We know it happens. It happens in... You know, some of those places that, that they talked about in the video, but, but we don't really experience that. But in Mark's day, those were very real, pressing concerns. These were things that could actually happen. And a lot of times when we think about the rejection that the early Christians faced and the, the reason why they, they faced persecution and stuff, we, we can make it a little too simple and just 
say, okay, well, they refused to bow to the emperor. So there was an emperor, he wanted him to bow to him, they wouldn't worship them, so they faced persecution for that. And that, that's true, but there was a lot more to it than that. Because the people didn't like the Christians. They were really bothered by them. The, the Romans felt like they knew how to live, and they were, they were living the way they wanted to, and, uh, and they didn't want to see anything else. They had Jews who lived among them, and the Jews lived differently, and the Jews lived a little bit holier lives than the Romans, but you know, they just dealt with that through racism, right? So they just said, the Jews are weirdos, they're different from us, we don't really have to worry about them. But then all of a sudden, some Romans started to become Christians and started to live differently. And that was causing problems. Because they did a lot of, a lot of big sinful things. If you were at Build on Wednesday, Jonathan talked about uh, some of the, the sexual morality that they had in the Roman era. And, and I mean, it was almost impossible for a husband to do something that would be considered adultery against the wife. I mean, they, they could go out and visit prostitutes, anything they wanted to. And so then all of a sudden, some of their friends stopped doing that and started to love their wives and started to care about them, started to be faithful to them. They didn't like it. Light shining in the darkness, but people don't like it when you do that. You turn on the light when they're sleeping, they don't love that. Some of it wasn't just that. Some of it was felt a little bit more dangerous than that. There were guilds who had like guild gods. And if everybody participated in the worship of, of the, the god, then things would go well and they would be blessed. And if they didn't, then they would be cursed by their gods. And that's even the families had that where they would have a family god. And if they didn't worship the family god correctly, the family god would curse them. And so a Christian who starts living for Christ and stop living for the family god... He's actually putting them at risk. That's what they felt. And so they were rejected and they were persecuted. I mean, one of the, the famous things that, that people talk about is in Rome, just kind of an illustration of how, how depraved they were, was if they had a baby that they didn't want, they would go and they would, they would put him out in the trash. And one of the famous things about early Christians is that they would go out and they would rescue those babies. And then they would start raising those babies. But imagine that on a practical level, that somebody goes out and they puts their baby out there and then their Christian brother goes out and rescues the baby. And now throughout the years, they're seeing their child being raised by the brother. And they're not going to be filled with warm fuzzies. They're going to be reminded of their failures. And what makes it worse is they probably know all of the sin that their friends and families who are now Christians had done in the past. Right, They're seeing their Christian friends raising their babies, but they remember when their friends threw, put their babies out there. And they don't believe in the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And so, so they see people living this way, and a lot of times they would get angry and offended. And they would look at the Christians and they would say, what, you think you're better than us now? And that's exactly what Jesus faced. Right? It says in chapter 6, and on the Sabbath, he's in his hometown, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? It's funny how they say that, right? Because they don't say the son of Joseph, right? So they're they know something about the birth of Jesus, and so they're poking at him as an illegitimate person. They were offended by him. They didn't like it. 
In Nicaragua, there's a, a saying that I think is helpful here, and it's talking about a person who's trying to put on airs. And it says, it says that uh, he come frijoles y sale con palillo de diente. And what that means is he eats beans, come frijoles, he eats beans, but then he walks around with a toothpick. And the idea is that they're all in these poor communities and meat is hard to come by. So they all eat beans. But then somebody's trying to put on airs and act like they have meat to eat, right? So they're going around, walking with a toothpick, strutting around. And everybody else is like, we know who you are. We know that you're just eating beans like the rest of us. You're just one of us. And so they mock him for walking around with a toothpick because they know. And that's what they're saying about Jesus. Here comes Jesus teaching in the synagogue, strutting around with a toothpick in his mouth like he's some big deal. But we know where he comes from. He's the son of Mary. We're not even going to mention his father. And he was rejected. We feel that way sometimes when we get rejected. Some of you may have that. We have people who keep on bringing up stuff from your past. Maybe you got saved out of some sort of, uh, you know, sinful lifestyle. We all did. And so people start bringing that up and they start asking, saying to you, what, do you think you're better than me now? And they, can, they might they even mention what you used to do. You try to live a Christian life, you're trying to be holy, and they just think you're strutting around with a toothpick, trying to put on airs. And even though you say, no, I, I have the Holy Spirit, something's changed in me. They don't believe it. So we get rejected. But how did Jesus respond to that rejection? We see that in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching it's really interesting. There's a, there's a mystery in this passage uh, in verse 5 where it says, and he could do no mighty work there. Because people don't, don't it's, it's hard to know what does that mean. Uh, to, to some extent, that could mean that people didn't have the faith to receive the healing. Right? That there is some connection between that, having faith in God and, and being, uh, receiving the answers to your prayer, and they didn't have that. I think one aspect of it is that they just didn't come to him for healing. I mean, everywhere Jesus goes, there's always this crowd around him asking him to be healed. But these people were offended by him. And so only a few sick people came to him, and he healed them. And there were people who were home, alone, staying there, sick, broken, demon-possessed, unwilling to come to God because they were so offended by him. It's really sad when you think about it, and that's why Jesus marvels at them. But, but it's interesting the way he responds, because he doesn't apologize for being who he is. He, he doesn't say, he, he, well, what he does is he says, a prophet is not without honor except his own country. He's still referring to himself as something important. He, he is walking around with the toothpick because he's a big deal. He, he's not apologizing for that. But how do we respond when we get rejected and we get criticized? Oftentimes, we internalize it. We hang our head. You're right. I shouldn't be this way. Sometimes we pretend like we don't have this great gift of the Holy Spirit changing our lives. Like we, you know, like, like we want to hide it because we're so afraid of offending people. They criticize us. They reject us. But the passage here reminds us this, that just because you're rejected for Christ, you're not a loser. That's not what happens. Jesus wasn't a loser, and neither are you. 
And Jesus goes on and he goes on, he continues on his work. Eventually, he gathers the 12 and he sends them out. And he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. He sends them out. And he tells them in verse 10, he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So he's telling them, go out, go spread the gospel. If you're prepared, not everybody is going to believe you. But they went out and they prayed and they, they spread the gospel. People got saved, people got healed, and people rejected them. But what did he tell them to do when they got rejected? Shake the dust off their feet. He didn't say, okay, well, let's rethink what you did wrong. Uh, go back in there and, you know, and feel bad about yourself and, and go, go back in there and try again. No, what Jesus does is he puts the responsibility of rejecting the gospel on the people who are rejecting the gospel. And that's a pretty helpful thing. Because sometimes we live differently. We respond differently. We internalize the rejection. If only I had worded it differently. If only if I had lived a little bit better. And what we do is when we come to evangelism and sharing our faith, on the front end, we heap all this pressure. I got to do it perfectly. I got to do it right. I got to make sure I say the right thing. So we have all this pressure on the front end. And then when we get rejected, we have all this guilt on the back end of I didn't do it as good as I should have. I should have done it differently. And so we got so much pressure and guilt that it's just easier not to do it. It's easier not to do it than to try and to fail. And something that happens because we get raised, if you've been raised in church, I mean, I remember being raised and being told that every soul you came in contact with, you were responsible for them. And I've used this illustration before, but it's been a while, so I'll use it again. I mean, that put a lot of pressure on me and for those of us who have heard those type of things, that you're responsible for every soul you come in contact with. Because now ordering pizza is not just getting food delivery, right? Now it's a gospel opportunity. You're on the hook. You go online, you order your pizza. I mean, it's already a fight to kind of figure out which toppings you want when you got kids. And you're like, okay. And then 30 minutes, they're coming. You got to be ready, right? So you start going through your, your mind. What am I going to say? I'm responsible for this soul. He's coming. You start going through answers in Genesis. You start the way of the master, whatever, EE. You start going through all of your different past theological training. What am I going to say when he comes up? You see the car come up. Now you're sweating, right? Like he's coming up. I got it. I'm responsible. It comes to the door. You take the pizza. You're panicking. You say, oh, I see the pizza's hot. You know what else is hot? <laughs> Hell, if you were to die today, the guy runs off, you got a restraining order from Pizza Hut. I mean, it's just... And you can't even enjoy the pizza because it's hot. And it reminds you of your failure. This is where the guy is, hot pizza. That's not the kind of lifestyle that Jesus is calling us to. It's not the kind of pressure and guilt that he's wanting us to do, feel. He doesn't call the people and send out the disciples and then chastise them for their failures. 
He's not giving this story to chastise the early Christians who were trying to live faithful lives and trying to spread the gospel at great risk for themselves, both socially and physically. He was trying to remind them that, that we are on a mission and sometimes we get rejected. Now, of course, of course, there's benefit to, to knowing more about your faith. And of course, there's some benefit for, uh, you know, knowing some apologetics. And there's important to have some tact, right? Don't go on an airplane and say to the person next to you, if you were to die today, that gets you on the no-fly list, right? That's, you don't want to do that. Don't be a jerk online, right? I mean, there's some basic things. But on the whole, what we have to remember is that when we get rejected for our faith, we're not a loser. We're not the loser. In the story of Herod and John the Baptist, Herod had John the Baptist in his custody for a while, and he would talk to him about his faith. But then eventually, he cuts his head off. So who's the loser in that story? Who is it? It's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one of the greatest men who ever lived. This isn't a story of John the Baptist's failure. It was a story about how Herod had an opportunity and he rejected it. And right now, both John the Baptist and Herod are still aware of what's going on. John the Baptist is in heaven awaiting the new creation and Herod's in hell awaiting the final judgment. Who is the loser in that story? It's not John the Baptist. But we internalize it. We internalize the rejection. And we have a culture sometimes of just, of just thinking about how bad we are and how big of a failure we are. We hear people say things, well, I like Jesus and I would be a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. And I'm sure you've heard that. And we're like, oh, yeah, we, we stink. We're no good. I mean, people say that. It's not true. It's not true. I mean, what do these people think? Like, they're going to be the one guy in the crowd who would have been different when Jesus was being crucified. Everybody else is yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And this one guy's like, I don't know. I like Jesus. I want to crucify Barabbas. No, it's not true. What that is meant to do is it's meant to demoralize Christians into inaction. When he sent out the disciples, he gave them authority even over the demons. They were going out to, to spread the gospel. And he gave them this great authority, which makes, begs the question, do you know who you are? I mean, if you are in Christ, you have been made new. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside you. You have union with Christ. You're given victory over the power of sin in your life. You, even the demons are subject to you. You're kind of a big deal. Not because of, of what you did, but because of what Christ is working inside of you. But the devil doesn't want you to feel that. He doesn't want you to know your strength. He wants you to feel rejected and to internalize it and to stop evangelizing because you feel so bad about yourself. So how do we, though, how do we go about sharing our faith, living for Christ, even, even when we get rejected? I think that we can see some of that in chapter 6, verse 7. 
8 and 9. It says this, And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, and their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Why did he send them out without anything? To teach them to rely on him. To teach them to rely on, the, on, on God providing for their needs. See, if we're going to go out and we're going to live for Christ in spite of being rejected, we have to live in dependency on him. Christ would go out in the mornings and pray. Even after big deal celebrations, he would go and he was healing all a bunch of people. And then the next morning, where is he? He's out praying, spending time with the Father. We learn dependence on him and we learn to, to rely on him. And that's, that's a way we can go out and we can do it. There's um, a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield and her testimony is pretty interesting. She was uh, a skeptic, an atheist. She was uh, actually a, a leader in, in, in some of the um, homosexual, lesbian kind of movement, and she was really anti-Christian. In fact, she decided she was going to write a book uh, against Christians. But to do that, like, she wanted to get to know some of them. So she, she meets a guy who's, a, who's actually a Presbyterian pastor, and she starts meeting with him over the years. They befriend each other, and they start talking about things. And then over the years, they're having more and more conversation, and she starts, she starts to, to, to feel, you know, unsettled with the way she's living. And one day she has a crisis moment. And so she goes to the pastor, and she's thinking that this is the time where he's going to come in with the big cell, and he's going to, like, you know, close the deal. But she goes, she shares with him uh, about, about what, what was going on in her heart. And he sends her home, and he says, uh, I want you to go and think about your Catholic baptism and the meaning of that. And if you don't know, that's a, that's a weird evangelism method. That's in none of the books. It really isn't. But she goes and she does that. And through that process, she gets saved. She comes to him. And then later on, as she's writing her autobiography and stuff, she, she asks him, why did you tell me to do that? And he said, well, that's what I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to do at the time. See, here's a man who was relying on the Holy Spirit. He had all sorts of training. He had all sorts of Sure, apologetics and education he could have pointed to, but he's relying on the Holy Spirit. And the reality is this, that a Christian who relies on the Holy Spirit is more powerful than even a pastor with all his education who doesn't. You're kind of a big deal. The Holy Spirit is operating in you. And now as we're going to two services, what a great opportunity to be rejected for the faith, right? I mean, because you can start thinking about who, who, do you, who should you invite. You start inviting them to church, having spiritual conversations with them. Maybe they reject you. Maybe they think poorly of you. Maybe they stop being your friend. But maybe they don't. Right? Maybe they come. Maybe in your spiritual conversations they get saved. Maybe they go to heaven. And you have an eternity to talk about the amazing power of Christ and what happens when Christians are led by the Spirit and relying on Him? And maybe you have eternity to talk about the glories of risking rejection by man but being accepted by God. And just how great of an exchange that really is. And of course, as we talk about rejection and rejecting Christ, 
we have to address in the room the people who, who may be rejecting Christ now. You know, the, the people who rejected Jesus in Nazareth, they, I mean, they knew him. They knew who he was. They knew he was special, yet they were offended by him and they rejected him. And Herod, he had access all the time to John the Baptist. He liked, it actually says that he enjoyed talking to him. He liked what he had to say, but he was unwilling to submit to God. He was unwilling to repent, and he rejected God. So the call to now is that if you have been running from the Lord, even if you've been attending church, maybe you're raised in church, you're coming here, you kind of like what's being said, but you're unwilling to, to turn your life to him, that even during this next song, what a great opportunity to pray, to ask Christ to forgive you, ask him to fill you with your spirit, to adopt you into his family, and give your life to him and stop running. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and acceptance for us. Lord, we thank you that even though we get rejected by the world, even though there's times where people will cut us out of their lives, persecute us, and all that, that we are accepted by you. We thank you, Lord, that we aren't losers because we're in your family. We're your adopted children. And that you have done all these things ahead of us. Father, we ask for your spirit to help us to go and live bold lives as testimonies in daily dependence on your spirit to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. The promise of the benediction is that in Christ we are already accepted. If you're faith and hope is in him. You are his adopted child. And whether you go out here and invite 30 people and lead them all to Christ or nobody, you are still his beloved child. And we get a rest in that, that in the rejection of the world, we are still accepted and loved by God. When God thinks about you, it's with a smile on his face and joy in his heart. So adopted children of God, receive your benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forever. Amen.